morning. Two of you, that's good. Morning. So welcome aboard. My name is Derek. I'm the pastor here, and uh, good to see you. And obviously this is a better side. Everybody's sitting on this side. So uh, let's talk to you guys. Um, <laughs> so welcome if you're new with us. We've been in this uh, eight weeks teaching series. We're in the eighth Sunday of the year, so here we are, eight weeks, moving right along. Today's actually the last um, teaching in this series, and it's all been based on these eight things that Jesus said um, in Matthew chapter 5, you can see them in verses 1 through 10, but they all begin with the word blessed, and so we've called the series Blessed, Real Creative. And, um, but there are all these statements about the kinds of people that God looks at and says, they're blessed. Those are blessed people. It's always a question like, I feel blessed. What does that really mean? Well, Jesus gives us some uh, framework for that, and it's, it's in these eight statements. And uh, so we've been working through those, and they've all been great. I think there's been a lot that we've learned together. Uh, we're going to bundle these up and put them in some sort of set uh, on CD and some resources if you would like that. But it might take a while because I, as much as I really want to preach for 30 minutes, it, it's hard for me. And um, so to get them all on my, just a couple of discs, it's been, so we're, work, we're working on editing things down, so it may take a while. But all that to say, uh, we've been working through uh, these eight things, and I've had a good time. I hope that you have as well. And we're going to end it today. This is it. Uh, it'll be a once-off next week, just kind of a Sunday between series, and then we begin the Lent season, uh, which I'm excited. The stories that we're going to look at uh, from two Sundays from now all the way to Easter are just these passages where we go with Jesus into these extraordinary situations, and some incredible things happen. So we've called the series Renewal, and, uh, and so that's going to be happening in a couple weeks. But today, like I said, we're just going to end this thing and shut her down. All right, are you ready? So it ends on a high note. Here we go. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Yeah. For righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As we've done each week, I want us to say this together. Here we go. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, just to help you understand what it means to be persecuted and what it means not that you know, you're not undergoing persecution, I found this graph uh, that someone had published, and um, I, I didn't want to just throw the graph on the screen because you wouldn't be able to read it, so I just kind of broke it down and wrote some things out on the graph. So the, the, first, the first part goes like this. This just helps you. Did someone threaten your life, safety, civil liberties, or right to worship? If the answer is yes, then you are being persecuted. Are you with me so far? Okay, so just helping you understand this. Um, Next slide. Uh, no? Okay. Then did someone wish you happy holidays and not a Merry Christmas? If the answer is yes, you are not being persecuted. Are you with me now? Okay. Are you, so <laughs> you know where this is going. This is going to get very touchy. Um, persecution. I know it's very easy for us to read this word or listen to this word as it's read from the lips of Jesus. Um, I know it's easy to read that and think, oh, this is about that kind of thing where I'm being pushed out, so to speak, because of, you know, my faith or whatever. But here's the thing. We're in America, and there is nothing more ironic this morning than for me, a white pastor, to stand on the stage on a building that sits in one of the most affluent neighborhoods in the southeast and talk about persecution. It's just dumb. I mean, because I just have not undergone any of that, and you, you probably have not either. 
I mean, we live in America. We were talking about this as a band in our devotions prior, just saying, man, when you just think about it, like when we go through elections for presidents here, now, whoever you vote for, fine, but it, you know how it gets all escalated and everybody's angry and there's all these reports and stories and conspiracy theories and out to get who and this and that and whatever and here comes the presidential election and we have the debates and everybody's pointing and laughing and, and you know, making accusations or whatever. I mean, it gets, really, it gets really crazy and loud and angry and you know, news channels divide. They're already divided, but they divide and they have their own like, sort of commentary on this or that and they criticize each other and then Jon Stewart like, adds some equilibrium to it all. And then there's all this sort of stuff that goes on around presidential elections and, it, and, you, and you could say that at some point it gets like just to the place where you just have to delete your Twitter account, at least for a season, and then it, all this anger. But here's the thing about the United States of America. Like once the election is over, the new president walks into office and nobody has died in the process, which is not the case in other places. Case in point, I mean, we're just watching stuff unfold. Revolutions happen in front of I mean, we vote, people get mad, but people move on. We just don't live in a place where this is happening. We just don't live in an environment where persecution makes a lot of sense to us. And again, as a white pastor in an affluent neighborhood talking about this, it just feels, it feels really strange. Um, and part of the reason is because I think we don't really understand what it means to be persecuted, so we just sort of make up things. The church makes up things to say, well, that's persecution, right? When I was working as a youth pastor at a church years and years and years ago, they eventually fired me, so here I am. Um, it wasn't the church before this one, but there was a season. Um, but here's the thing about it. Like, we had sold our building. It was in Peachtree City. Anybody familiar with Peachtree City? Couple, couple golf cart people. If you're not familiar with Peachtree City, look it up. It's, like, it's not unlike living in a state park. I mean, there's all these rules and regulations about how many trees you have to leave on your property, what color your uh, you know, house can be and what color it cannot be. There's a long list of colors it cannot be, uh, how, what kind of mailbox you can have. And I'm not kidding about any of this. Like, the McDonald's in Peachtree City is green because they, they don't want a red and a yellow thing. I mean, it's just green or something like that. So this is the sort of world we lived in. Um, everybody had a golf cart to get around, like we had one. Can you, can you see me? Like, <laughs> that's how I'm getting around is in a golf cart. We had one, because somebody gave us one. But uh, that's where we lived. And the church that I was working for, like we had sold our building, and we were going to build a new building. But for two years in, the, in between, we met in a school. And so for two years, there was all this sort of, you know, we're in a building campaign and whatever, and there's the church side of that, which is raising money, awareness, et cetera, and putting up cool pictures and sharing vision. And on the other end of that, there's the relationship between uh, the church and the construction company and the city. And again, Peachtree City is very, very strict about things. And uh, so we would run into, a, it, it was slower to get a building built there than it would be, say, somewhere else. And so, but again, I just figured that's just how it works. I'd never built a, you know, a 30,000 square foot building before, so I guess this is how it works. Uh, but every now and then, like if something fell through, like our head of the construction you know, the foreman on the construction crew, like he got arrested, true story. Uh, so that happened. So that sort of shut down construction for a while. Then there were some issues with the loan. Then there were some issues with the city and how many trees we were leaving up. And did we have golf cart access? I mean, these are first world problems. And um, so all sorts of things like that, right? 
Well, there was a, a season where like a lot of that would be going on back to back to back. And I guess it was frustrating for, um, you know, the lead pastor and always. Been, there was one guy on our staff that would, he would come in to staff meetings and he would, I mean, he would essentially say, guys, you know, we've hit another roadblock and um, I'm not surprised because we're, we're trying to do the thing Jesus has called us to do and we're being persecuted for it. You know, and I'm, this might be why I was fired eventually, but <laughs> I would say, okay, time out, like nine out of ten of us are driving golf carts around. That's how we get around, right? Most of us leave our doors unlocked because nobody does any crime here. And I just, I just don't think, this just may be me, but I don't think Satan is shutting this thing down. Nor do I think Satan is in the hands of the city, you know. And nor do I think that whatever is happening to us that really happens to anything else that gets built in this town is because we're being persecuted, right? And then I was looking for a job. <laughs> but are you with me on this so far? Because we don't really understand what it's like to live in a place where your faith may cause problems for you, uh, we just kind of look for stuff and say, that's persecution. We're being persecuted because it's an annoyance. It's, it's keeping us from moving forward in whatever way we see fit. The other problem is that America has struggled with this. Now, what I'm going to say, and I'll say this because it happened first hour, it's going to get real quiet in here for the next 10 minutes. But I want you to listen. Because in America, we struggle with this. In America, we have almost gotten on the other side of this passage, blessed those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and we've taken it apart and put it back together in such a weird, messed up way. And we've used it to our advantage. I mean, when you think about our country and its history, it's full of all sorts of persecution, but done in the name of Jesus. I mean, there's genocide in our history, all because God gave us this land. There's slavery in our history, because there's a verse in the Bible that says slavery. There's racism that essentially ruled this country until just a couple of generations ago, but we're still dealing with that. All justified by Scripture, segregation, justified by Scripture, right? The act of desegregation fought with Scripture, and now it's, an, now it's okay if we refuse to sell cupcakes to gay people. We have disassembled this passage and put it back together in such a crazy fashion and have used it in a weird way. And if there was ever a person in recent history that has been persecuted in this country for the sake of righteousness, it would be Martin Luther King. Because what does righteousness mean in the Bible? It doesn't mean that you're holy and pure. It means that you're fighting to put the world back together the way God intended it to be. It means repairing and returning the world to its intended condition. When the Bible talks of righteousness, embedded in that word is fighting injustice. And putting yourself on the line for the things that are wrong. And so MLK is a prime example. Fighting for desegregation. Fighting for equality. Fighting so that we would become a place one day where all kinds of people could just live together. 
And what happens to him? He gets thrown in jail multiple times. He's accused of things. Uh, People hate him. Eventually, he's killed. So if there was ever a person in America's history that was persecuted for righteousness' sake, it's not some pastor who can't get his church built. It's somebody who put their life on the line for things that are wrong and right. Are you with me so far? So when the Bible says righteousness' sake, it's that somehow the people of God have stood up and said, I'm looking at the world, and it's not as God intended it, and here are the reasons why, and we're going to push ourselves towards that. And in the process of that, there's going to be pushback. Because the way of Jesus is a very dangerous thing. And so in our country, just again, laying this foundation, it is very, very difficult for us to understand what this verse really means because we have really messed with it in the church. And we have made it something that it never was or was ever meant to be. You'll know if you're being persecuted. I'll explain that in a moment. But just because somebody laughs at you because you're a Christian or, you know, they didn't invite you to lunch with the other guys at work because they know you don't want to go to the places that they go. It's not persecution. It's not persecution. And just because the state is wrestling with marriage issues or just because there's all these issues going on at the political level, it's not persecution. The writers and framers of the scriptures would look at us and say, okay, I'm trying to understand you but it's not persecution. And one of the things that happens is we think when we see this verse, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, when we see persecution, we think we know what that means. Like, okay, I know what this means. When Jesus says persecuted, when the Bible says persecuted, this is what this means. It's, it's Friday in Rome, and they open the Colosseum, and they sell tickets, and they throw a bunch of Christians in there, and they kill them. That's what we think. We think, oh, this is the thing that they do on the movies. But the truth is, although those things did happen, and Christians weren't the only part of that, although those things did happen, it would be hundreds of years later, second, third, fourth century, that those things began to happen. When Jesus spoke these words, and when the early Christians were forming their communities, persecution was not really about that. And the persecution that took place was more interpersonal and within their own faith system. Now, I know I'm giving you a lot of information that you probably didn't pay for, but... uh, (laughs) So, for a hundred years or so, the early Christians just continued to go to the synagogue. I mean, they just continued to go to their Jewish houses of worship, but they were just people who followed Jesus at the point. And it was really awkward. And it wasn't until maybe a hundred years or so after Jesus that the synagogue finally just said, okay, you guys have got to go. It wasn't like Jesus died buried, resurrected, and then they built a bunch of churches. They just kept doing what they always did. They just saw themselves as fully completed Jewish people. The Messiah had come, and we were lucky to see it. And so any sort of persecution that happened was, for the most part, they lost friendships. Some people lost jobs. Some people were told they were crazy. Maybe you've been told you're crazy because you believe in Jesus. It was just things like that. There was some violence, but not to the level that you imagine. We're living in a far more violent time religiously than ever. And so when we read these words and hear these words of Jesus, blessed are those who are persecuted, it has to do with something else. This is actually the only beatitude in the set that he amplifies a little bit. Notice what it says next. 
It's blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to say, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So he helps us out. It's about speech and accusation. It's about people circling around you and saying, you're crazy, I don't want to be around you anymore, and on and on and on. And maybe even to the point of accusing you of things that aren't true. Now it's a complicated endeavor for us to work through this, but I want to try and help you understand this in light of the whole passage. These aren't once-off statements like little greatest hits of Jesus. These are, (laughs) I like that too, Um, this is a comprehensive teaching. And, so, and Jesus closes it with, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs, are the, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's eight of these. The first and the eighth are very similar. Let me show them to you. The first one says, Blessed are those who are what? Poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Does this sound familiar? The eighth one says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven heaven, the kingdom of heaven, and blessed. You're blessed because you're in the midst, the center, the heart of God's way when you find yourself in these two conditions. Poverty of spirit and persecution because of righteousness. Now what I want you to notice is that these bookend the eight, which means the six in the middle are something we should pay attention to because perhaps the six in the middle lead to what we're looking at on the screen right now. And these are, in fact, very similar and quite related statements. If you were here for week one, we talked about how to be poor in spirit means that you've been robbed of life. I know we think it means that you hunger for God. That's normally the result of being poor in spirit, but poor in spirit, according to Jesus, is not a great thing. It's when your spirit, the thing that gives you the life and the joy and the strength to move on is taken from you. And so those who are poor in spirit are walking around hopeless. And it's in those moments that God says to them, you're blessed because I'm I'm there with you. I'm on your side. You're in the midst of my kingdom, the empire of the heavens. And then he ends it with, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who fight for what is right are often robbed of their life. They are often robbed of their spirit. They are poor in energy and drive. They often find themselves alone and isolated. And they would also identify themselves as being poor in spirit because their pursuit of righteousness is so important that it, it, it isolates them from the rest of the world. These two teachings bookend these six that you can see on the screen. And I just want to walk through these and I want to show you as best I can, I mean, we could talk about this for days, but I just want to show you as best I can um, how the six in the middle often lead to the things on the ends. Those who mourn, week two, those who mourn, Paul says in Romans 12, mourn with those who mourn. This is a command of scripture. When someone is going through a hard time, The call of the Christian is to mourn with them. And mourning is not fixing. This is where we confuse it. Mourning is not going into someone's pain and fixing it. It's just kind of crying with them. And 
taking on whatever it is that they're going through and feeling that with them and feeling the weight of that pain. It's not fixing, it's not offering suggestions, and it's definitely not saying, okay, you know how I told you that you shouldn't do this and you did it anyway and now you're in pain? It's not that. That's what we want to do, right? And that's what the world outside says, that's what you should do. They failed because they did the wrong thing and they knew better. But the ones who mourn with those who mourn, they don't do that. They just go in and they, they absorb the pain and help carry the person through. Those who mourn with those who mourn are in the heart of the Jesus way. And the world doesn't like that all the time. And then Jesus said something crazy like, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Like, he's saying this in the midst of the Roman Empire. Like The meek don't inherit anything around here. The ones with the guns and the tanks and the power, they inherit. But the meek don't get anything. And Jesus says, I need you to be, what is meek? Meek is that power under constraint. It's a great definition. Just this kind of uh, resistance to violence, resistance to fighting back, resistance to, again, you go back into those who mourn. It's resistance of in that moment saying, I told you so. It's resistance against the need to be right. Even if you are right. See, that's the thing. Like, if I'm right, I want everybody to know I'm right before the sun goes down. But the meek don't do that. The meek are, and in the biggest sense, in the sense in which the scriptures speak of this, the meek are the people who understand that God will do what God will do, and God will do what is right, and I don't have to take the wheel from him. I don't have to get ahead of Jesus and do the things that he's going to do anyway, or do the things that I think he should do when he never had that in mind. Greatest example of this would be, they're arresting Jesus, some say it's Peter, but Peter comes up and takes a sword, I love that he's carrying a sword, and he chops the ear off of the guard. And Jesus doesn't go, and now the revolution begins. Jesus picks up the ear, very creepy, puts it back on the man, heals him. I don't know how every soldier at that point didn't go, I'm going to go with Jesus. But he heals the man's ear, and then he looks at Peter, if that's him, and says, what are you doing? This is not how it works. We're on a mission here. Like, God has a plan, and it will unfold in his time. We don't take swords and stand for Jesus. He does that. And when you're meek, when you don't have to win, when you don't have to be right, you find yourself alone. Because that's not how the world works. And then Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. Like, here we are at the turning point again. I mean, we're looking at this today as well. But blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. What is that? Again, it's not about being holy or pure or perfect. It's about positioning your life and your resources and your energy toward the things of God. Specifically, what's wrong with society and the world. And to be a voice of reconciliation and peace and so on. And when you do that, there's a, there's a fullness that happens in you, but there is often an isolation that happens as well. One of the most isolated people in history was Mother Teresa. Gave her life to the pursuit of righteousness and was often very alone. We think she's cool, but she struggled. In her autobiography, the tales of doubt and struggle and fear and aloneness will really level that idea that she was cool. It'll tell you more about what it really means to be a follower of Jesus in the most extreme circumstances. Jesus also said, blessed are those who are merciful. 
No mercy, that's it. That's the line in the sand. We're not, there's no mercy in this dojo. Like, that was a Karate Kid line. But <laughs> I'm old, you're not. It's one of those things. But uh, blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. That's just true. I mean, those who aren't mercy don't really ever receive mercy. But there's also this spiritual otherness to what's going on as well. And mercy in situations that the world would say no mercy is required when the follower of Christ is merciful in those settings, you end up being quite alone, isolated, because that's not what we all thought you should do. You shouldn't have let him go. You shouldn't have let her go. You shouldn't have let them off the hook. You shouldn't have withheld whatever it is that you could have given. Right? And then Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Like, this is so incredible, this, like, childlike faith that you just, you're so genuine in your pursuit. But there's also a relational component here. All of these are very, very relational, more than anything else. And that we have a genuineness and a transparent nature about our relationships. Like when people enter the church, it kind of should freak them out a little bit because everybody's open and honest and that's okay. In a world where we live so guarded as adults, Jesus calls the church to be children and to be honest and to be open and to just, this is where I'm at. And nobody gets buried for that. The church is a little weird like that. Like you go to a small group for the first time and it's like, hey, whoa. Do we really say these things here? You know? And the truth is, you've got a, you've got a truckload of stuff you could say too. And the thing about being pure in heart in our relationships outside of here, I mean, this is the point. Like when we're outside of this building in the world and whatever, when we're pure in heart, we're genuine, open with people, it's not necessarily what people like. It's not necessarily what people want. And then last week we talked about blessed are the peacemakers, those who champion peace, those who herald peace, those who go into situations where there is not peace and they seek peace, those who want to make peace between two warring parties, those who are willing to stand between two warring parties and seek reconciliation. Peace doesn't take a side. The world wants you to take a side. And peacemaking doesn't take a side. Peacemaking takes the side of peace and reconciliation. And that's a frustration for people because there needs to be a side. And somebody has to win. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are peacemakers, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God, children of God. Simply, peacemakers are doing a God-like thing. And when you live all those things out, those first, the first one and the last one, they make more sense to us at that point. Yeah, I feel robbed of my spirit at times, or I feel... I feel isolated. I feel persecuted. What does persecutor really mean? The Greek word is just too complicated for me to say in public because I'm going to mess it up. But it essentially means to be pursued and harassed. Like it's not like somebody points and laughs and runs. It's that they're always on your trail. And they're always pointing out your faults. And they're always saying, this is why I don't like you. I just want to remind you, this is why I don't like you. And maybe you get fired because they don't like you. And that's what the word means. And if you live all those things in the middle... If you mourn with those who mourn, if you're meek in all situations, if you hunger and thirst for what is right, if you're merciful in every situation, if you're pure in heart with people, and if you seek peace, I'm going to tell you, you're going to end up alone at times. 
And I think what Jesus is reminding us of, both with the first and the last beatitude, is that this is going to be, at times, very hard for you. Because the world doesn't operate this way. And we're pushing back against that when we become followers of Christ. We're pushing back against the condition of the world and saying that it's better. God has called us to be and do better. And that's not always the way it works. Take the issue of slavery. There are more slaves on the planet today than ever before in history. Majority of them are locked into the sex trafficking industry. And there are people who have given themselves to eradicating that. And what's interesting is that it's not going away because there are forces against that. We all think about it and go, well, yeah, that should stop. But there are people in other parts of the world that when you approach them and say, this needs to stop, they say, we will kill you if you try to stop this. For what? For something in our minds that is so simple. And yet, there are forces against what is right. And there are forces against what should be fixed. That we, in some way, don't have a lot of control over, and yet, we continue to fight it, and to press, and to make change. And it doesn't always work. It doesn't always end right. And I think what Jesus is reminding us of here is that there are going to be seasons where If you follow me, it's great. It really is. I wouldn't trade it. But it will be hard at times. Even in America, it will be hard at times. Because Jesus, and I'll get to this in a minute, Jesus is kind of a dangerous man. Shane Claiborne, in his book, Irresistible Irresistible Revolution, Uh, said these words, I know that there are people out there who say my life was such a mess. I was drinking, I was partying, sleeping around. And then I met Jesus and my whole life came together. Maybe you know people like this, maybe you said this. And he says, God bless those people. But me, I had it together. I used to be cool and then I met Jesus and he wrecked my life. He goes on to say, the more I read the gospel, the story of Jesus, the more it messed me up turning everything that I believed in, valued, and hoped for upside down. And I love this line. I'm still recovering from my conversion. What does this mean? It simply means that the more you get in touch with the Jesus story, and if you decide to follow Jesus, it will wreck your life in ways that you never once imagined. He is a dangerous thing. Because Jesus will lead you to love people that you once hated. Jesus will lead you to go into places in people's lives that you once stayed away from. Jesus will lead you to show grace to those that you once wished would die and fall away. Jesus will take you into relationships that you never would have gone into before. He is very dangerous in that regard. He will make you look at all people groups differently than you did before. This is really the true miracle. Yes, Jesus healed people who were blind and deaf and couldn't walk, but the true miracle is that someone who was a racist is no longer a racist. That's the miracle of Christ. Someone who used to hate everybody now loves everybody. That's the true miracle. Are you with me on that? 
Someone who used to never show mercy is now merciful. That's the miracle. That's the transformation. That's the new creation that happens in Christ. And that's a dangerous thing. And if you trust Christ, if you go into a relationship with him, he will lead you to places that you never once believed you would ever be. And when you go there, your old world won't know what to do with you. And sometimes they're fine. And sometimes they're not. And sometimes you find yourself alone and by yourself. I want to say this, and we'll start to close it down with this. Uh, we at the church here, we work really hard to make sure that it's safe here in all kinds of ways. Like if you have children, we, just, we, we work hard to make sure that it's safe for your kids here. Like we talk about this every week. Check-in procedures, safety procedures, check-out procedures. How can we improve that? How many teachers are in every room? What's it look like? Do we need to fix that door so it doesn't cut a kid's arm off? Do we need to you know, do all these sorts of things to make sure it's a very safe environment? Are those toys clean? Is that safe? Is that too small? Is that too big? Whatever. Uh, how are the workers? How do we get workers? Who, are, who volunteers and who doesn't volunteer? How long do they need to be here before they volunteer? These are questions that we talk about all the time. What's the time frame for someone? They come in, they like us. Week two, they say, I'd really like to work with kids. Is that a red flag for us? Or is that something we pursue? How do we do it? And it's all based on, is it safe for the kids? Right? I know you think that our number one goal is to teach them about Jesus. That's in there. But honestly, and Kyle can tell you this because he works in this field, safety is our number one issue. That when you drop your kids off, you don't need to worry about it. You know, the workers are friendly, the environment's safe, everything looks good. And they're not going to come out with a bandage and a really bad, like, accident report, you know. Why, why, why does he have a thing around his head? Well, we were playing dodgeball in the parking lot, and he hit a car, but he's all right. Like, we don't do that. We don't do that. We make sure, and we talk about it week after week after week, safety, safety, safety. We want to make sure that it's safe for your kids. If you have middle school and high school students, and there's a retreat coming up in March, like, trust me, safety. We want to make sure it's safe. To take your kid, for us to take your kids away for a couple nights, that's a big deal. Safety is a big deal, right? And I have children in both of those areas. Like, I want to make sure it's safe too. My daughter's like really cute, so I just walk off with her. I don't want that to happen. You know what I mean? Like, oh, look, she's precious. And they're gone. I mean, it happens. I don't want that to happen. So we work hard that it's very safe. In this room, we spend so much time, I know you probably don't know this, but we spend so much time making sure that everything that happens in this room is good. You know, that I'm prepared, that Jeff's prepared, that everything works, that we're out of here in basically an hour and five minutes. Like, we work on it because we know that that's, a, that's an issue in America. Like, you said it was an hour, and I don't, I'm not doing anything else all day, but you said it was an hour, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we work hard to make sure that every, from the music to the talk to the, to the way that the chairs are clean and set up and there's nothing on the floor and, like, all of that, we, we make sure that it's safe. And we have host team members in the lobby with the cool shirts. You like the shirts? I love those shirts uh, with the Jetsons, uh, whatever. But um, why are they there? They're there to help new people come in and find seats. And if they have kids, to find the kids' area and to feel welcome. And they have huddles before every service just to remind themselves of that. That we're here to serve a purpose and it's to make people feel welcome and safe, and etc. 
Like all those things. Like I'm just trying, what I'm trying to tell you is we work hard to make sure that this one hour and some minutes is a safe time for you and your, if you have kids, for your kids as well. And everything that we do outside of this, it is very, very safe. But as a pastor, and more importantly, as a Christian, I need to tell you this, that we may work hard to keep it safe here, but Jesus is not safe. Now, we can keep it really safe for your kids, but one day little Jimmy may read the gospel, and it will move him into unsafe places. Jesus is dangerous. And I know it's America, and we got to keep it clean, and everybody gets a background check, but once you're out of this building, there's no guaranteed safety with Jesus. Because he takes us into places that we would never go. And he makes us think things about people that we would never think. It's safe here, but he's not safe. And if you feel that Jesus is safe and he fits nicely into a coloring book, and that's as far as your faith has gone, then I know that you're having a hard time with today's talk. I know that if there's never been a problem, a personal struggle, a journey, this is a hard talk for you. But Jesus says, persecution will come, and it's not in the arena with lions, but there will be isolation, and there will be moments when you feel alone. It's true. I'll I'll admit it. Jesus needs new PR. He has bad PR. Uh, There used to be a website, actually, it's now shut down, called Jesus Needs New PR. And I must admit that I really thought it was funny, really, really funny. And Because it shined light on every church marketing failure, like sermon series that tried too hard to be cool, church signs that weren't all that funny, uh, but they thought they were bumper stickers that offered, uh, (laughs) that offended people more than they encouraged them, and so on. Like, as a pastor myself, I had to laugh at those things just to keep from crying, because it's all very true. And ever since I can remember, I mean, even just as a teenager going back to church, like this was the thing. Ever since I can remember, the church in America has been trying to help Jesus succeed. That's what we've been doing. Because we're a free market society and you gotta, you gotta fight for it. So Jesus needs help. He needs PR. And there's always been a fear that Jesus wouldn't succeed, at least not on his own. And that may be true. It may be true. And if you're familiar with Jesus at all, you know that he is a social liability. There's no getting around that. If you don't keep an eye on Jesus, he will break things. And he will upset people, maybe even your friends. And no one wants that to happen. So we clean him up. We work hard to make him presentable. So he doesn't embarrass us. And this is seen mostly in the way that we try to connect him to the people we're trying to reach, saying things like, Jesus is just like you. That's what we do. Like, we just refashion him into, Jesus would totally live in Grant Park. (laughs) Any amens on that? That's what we do. 
No, Jesus is more, no, 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 Jesus is more Inman Park. Jesus is more Buckhead. No, 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 Jesus is more Lithonia. Jesus is more this neighborhood or that neighborhood. Or Jesus is more rock and roll than pop music, which I do believe, but that's another story. <laughs> but we just start, you know, we just start saying, well, Jesus would be just like you. He's just like you. Yeah, the things that you're doing, he would do that. He would love that, which is normally just the way we justify our behavior. But we would say, Jesus is just like you. And we try so hard to make him look like the people that we're trying to influence with him. But here's the thing, and I want you to listen closely to this. Even if we were able to edit Jesus down to the point where our friends would like him and want to hang around him, it's a failure from the start because in the end it will not work. It may at first. Lots of youth groups in my day growing up in the mid-80s filled up with kids because Jesus was cool. And then they walked away. They walked away. So it may work at first, but eventually it will fail. And the main reason is this. The main reason is grace. Because grace ruins everything. We think it helps everything, but it actually ruins everything. Grace ruins everything. It is reckless and uncontrollable. It doesn't really care what we think. It has a mind of its own. It's on its own mission. One that is set, it's set on accomplishing. So be warned, my friends, here in this tribe that we call Christian Church Buckhead, when you let Jesus out to play, it might work for a while, but eventually, sooner or later, his grace will ruin everything because grace ends up loving the wrong people. Grace ends up forgiving enemies. Grace ends up eating dinner with the 1%. Grace worships at the wrong denomination. Grace believes that people can change. Grace is comfortable with scandal. Grace doesn't mind losing friends. Grace loves the poor. Listen, grace loves the rich. Grace lives in the slums. Grace lives uptown. Grace is slow to anger. Grace doesn't have to win. Doesn't have to win. Grace doesn't keep score. And grace forgets the past. Hoping to get an amen there, but that's okay. Grace forgets the past. And we don't like that because we don't forget the past. And so all of that together and more, grace stands as this truth statement that puts a breach in determinism. And it says to the world, I'm going to ruin you. And you're not going to like it. Because grace ends up being pretty inclusive instead of exclusive. So clean Jesus up if you want. Put the right clothes on him, the right beard, the right neighborhood, the right beer. But he's still going to ruin it. Because he's going to end up loving the people that we don't love. And he's going to ask us to go there with him. Clean him up as we might. His grace will ruin our plans to control how he behaves and who he loves. And if we get in on that, we're going to experience isolation. Jesus would call it persecution. Being left out, alone. Maybe even let go because of that. I want to close with this. There's a verse from 1 Peter chapter 3 where he says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. This is a really incredible 
verse. It's often used to, okay, know your stuff, know your faith, know your scripture, and that's a good, that's a good piece. But the setting is not about that. This is actually what I'm going to read. I'm going to read all the verses around it. Is actually good commentary on what Jesus said in shorthand, which was, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Peter just expands on it and explains it a little bit. I'm going to read what's around this, but we'll leave this on the screen for you. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. There it is. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. And then he says this, Yet do it with gentleness and respect. In other words, persecution is not the result of some fight that we picked, but it is simply the result of what it looks like to follow Jesus in a world that doesn't like that. And it's the natural result of living the Jesus way. It's just the natural outcome at times when we live the Jesus way. And when we find ourselves in those places, Peter says, hey, be prepared to give a defense. The word there is apologia, apology, this reason. Give the reason to anyone who asks you, why is it that you have hope in the midst of these circumstances. And then verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. I don't have any influence in this country. I pastor a medium-sized church in a big city. Nobody knows who, I mean, I'm like an unknown leader in an unknown movement. But if I can at least say this to you, my friends, my tribe, my congregation, you know, and every other thing, maybe we can turn the tide. Maybe we can take a verse like that that's been so misused in this country, and maybe we can turn it around. And maybe we can live these things that we've talked about the last eight weeks. Maybe we can become people who mourn well, people who are meek, people who hunger and thirst for what is right, people who are merciful in all situations, people who are peaceable with others, people who are pure in their relationship. Like, maybe we could just become those people. Maybe if the 300 of us became those people, not just in this room and in our small groups, but in all the worlds that we all inhabit, maybe some things can really change. Maybe our neighborhoods can really see something. Maybe the people that we oversee at work can really begin to see something. Maybe the people that oversee us can see as we lead from the bottom with living the way of Jesus. Maybe things can change. Maybe your families can change. I mean, it's just a thought. And I think, I think this whole eight weeks has just been an invitation to give it a shot. But if you do, I warn you, it's not safe. But when you find yourself looking down the barrel of persecution, you smile because it's an indicator that you're doing it right. 
and that you deal with it in gentleness and respect. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're right in the midst of what God is doing. Amen? Take that for what it's worth. Um, I would like for us to do communion now. Not much of a transition. But if there ever was an act in history of grace, it was the coming of Christ into this world, his death, his burial, his resurrection, all in his own timing, and not when we were prepared or ready or worthy, uh, God showed his love to us by sending his son here. And so as you take the bread and the juice, as the church has done for 2,000 years, and you eat it and drink it, be reminded that God loves you, and he is inviting you into his way. And it's not a safe way. It's a dangerous way but he'll be with you every step. So I'm going to pray, and you can move to one of the four tables, two in the front, two in the back, and then we'll uh, sing when we're finished. God, thank you for this day, and thank you for um, the last eight weeks. It has been cumulative. It um, It has been great to move through each of these and to explore um, your agenda in our lives, which is to be these kinds of people. But God, sometimes we're left alone and robbed of spirit and we feel pressed and harassed only because we're doing those other things. And God, I pray that if that is the case for someone in the room today, that you have encouraged them, that you have reminded them that they're in a good spot. And that when we feel the need to fight back, that we don't. And that we be people of peace gentleness and respect. God, we know the whole thing ends really, really well. And so I ask that you give us the strength to move through each day knowing that you've got this. And God, as we put the bread in our hand in just a moment and we drink the juice, yes, they are symbols of your life and death and your love for us. But let them be a physical reminder today that you're with us as well, that you became a man, that incarnation is who you are, that you place yourself into our lives and you walk with us. Give us the strength uh, to live your way. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen.